I woke up and went to work every day and I was like a zombie. I was no good to anybody. But I couldn't leave because I had my wife and my family to support. It wasn't until I went to a meeting in Trostra Steelworks. It was raining outside. The droplets coming down the screen of my um, windscreen reminded me of the Matrix. And I started to think that I wasn't in the real world. Like, this world wasn't real. And I, and I looked and there was a huge grey machine spitting out grey metal filings, right? There was a huge grey um, chimney puffing out grey smoke. I had grey silt all over my suit, my briefcase, my shoes, and I just fucking broke down crying. And I picked my phone up. I rung my ex-wife. She says, what's the matter with you? And I said, I got to leave my job. And she said, what do you want me to do about it? And I said, I need your permission. I need to know that you'll be with me no matter what happens from this point on. And she said, I got your back. And fucking two seconds later, I quit. I just needed to know that if I fucked up, my wife wasn't going to leave me. I, I, had, I needed that support. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In this week's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted sits down with Lee Davey author and creator of thetruthaboutalcohol.co.uk and host of the Alcohol and Addiction podcast. They chat about Lee's experience with alcohol and getting clean in the UK, as well as opening up to vulnerability after hitting rock bottom. Can you really reinvent yourself? All that and more in this episode of Full Potential Now. All right, I'm here with the fabulous, dynamic Lee Davey is in the house. Lee, are you ready to rock Recovery Nation? I am ready to rock Recovery Nation. <laughs> All the way from the UK as well. So my, you're uh, like my first guest first guest overseas, man. I, I had to put a bit of beatbox in there because I woke up this morning and came downstairs and my wife's feeding a six-month-old baby and I start beatboxing to her because she loves it and my wife turns around and says, Lee, can you just knock that shit off? Because I got to be honest, <laughs> it just drives me insane and I'm trying to be like spiritual and peaceful and you come down rocking your shit. And, so I'm, I'm glad you want me to rock shit, <laughs> you know? This is this is why I have him on the show, man. This guy is like he uh, interviewed me on his podcast, you know, many months ago. But um, I was really struck with how honest you are as a person. I mean, you were the whole host asking me questions, but um, and I don't know if I even told, actually, even mentioned this to you, but you kind of rock my world a little bit by how honest you are about your struggles and how you've gotten to where you've gotten in your life. So I'm very appreciative, and I'm sure Recovery Nation's appreciative just to have you um, on the show today, and I, I know we're going to learn a lot. So why don't we uh, maybe start out with you telling us a little bit about um, maybe a basic intro okay. and, and kind of your journey a little bit. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll, make, I, I'll make this I, brief. Go on, so what was you going to say? Um, well, what I've learned in just kind of podcast journey of mine in from what I'm hearing from the listeners is they really appreciate honesty and they really appreciate kind of like, like the, you know, the gut wrenching stories are always good, hmm. but it's really gut wrenching stories around, um, hope and change and okay. inspiration. Okay. 
Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a brief nutshell version of who I am, and then you can poke some questions around it. So um, what am I? I'm 42 years of age at the moment. So I uh, started drinking uh, when I was about 14, I think. I lived in a little Welsh valley uh, of 3,000 people. Drinking was uh, very much the norm, societal thing to do. It was never a discussion I had in my mind whether I was going to drink or not. It was just I could not wait to fucking drink. Like, you know, it was like this is where we're going, you know. Um, And then for the next, what am I? So the next two decades, I just, you know, that's what I do. I I, I live to drink, right? I, I earn money in the week. So on the weekend, I can piss it up against the wall, right? So... I get to around 35 years of age and I kind of realize that my marriage is not really doing so well, you know, and I kind of picked up those hints by the fact that we would be fighting every night. Um, and I kind of knew that if I, if my wife didn't quit drinking alcohol, our relationship would fall apart because as every great addict knows, it's never, it's never your fault, right? So it's the other person. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I thought if she can quit alcohol, then this would be great because she's a pain in the ass. But um, no, she didn't want to quit. So I, I came up with this great plan, Ted. It was an amazing plan. I thought if I quit, then she wouldn't drink because like, why would she want to drink if I'm not drinking, right? So I quit yeah. uh, to save my marriage and uh, uh, she divorced me. So uh, that, thing, that plan didn't quite work out. Um, very harrowing time. Uh, I had a 10 year old boy at the time. Um, so that was really difficult. I, but it was a, it was a major epiphanal moment for me, Ted, you know, I, here I was so pleased with myself. that I quit drinking. I, I looked around and I knew nobody who had quit drinking alcohol right? The power and the pride that I felt in that moment. And I was so happy. I was not a drinker and I'm walking around like a peacock with my feathers fanned in the air and nobody gave a <laughs> shit. <laughs> and and shit. <laughs> not, not only did nobody give a shit, everybody hated me for it. They thought that I was a preacher. Uh, they were uh, afraid of me. My friend Akers said it uh, the best. He said, uh, Ching, they call me Ching, right? He said, Ching, I know best. I don't know how best to say this to you, but I'm really uncomfortable drinking with you. I, I don't know why it is. I, I can't put my finger on it. But when you come out to the pub and you don't drink, I feel really uncomfortable around you. And that was like a key insight for me. It was when I realised that. Hang on a minute. I haven't got. No, I haven't well, got a friend like, in the world. <laughs> well, this is like so. I'm so glad that you actually introed with this because this is such a relevant issue for so many people. You know, you, you were. In, it sounds like you were inspired. Like, hey, I'm going to give up drinking. You go ahead and do it. My wife's not going to drink. And whammo, you you know, one. You know, it's like a fist to the, the stomach. Hmm. You're bent over, and then um, you go out to probably maybe even can, still can connect with your friends, and they're kind of like, yeah, I don't know if you're so cool to hang out with anymore. So. Yeah. What would you do? Because I know so many people face this. And I know like, you know, myself as being an alcohol and drug counselor for so many years, you know, we'd always, you know, I'd sit in these therapy groups and obviously they're helpful. Um, you know, different types of treatment is very helpful for people, especially getting started on the road to recovery. But I just remember us as sometimes counselors preaching, well, just get a new sober support system. 
go to some meetings and uh, you'll totally be able to replace that old support system with a new support system. And I like having you on because I want to hear kind of your reaction <laughs> to what we were telling people, which I think like there's a, what I'm learning more and more doing these podcasts and interviewing these wonderful guests is that I think there's a real divide between the true treatment world and like what really is happening on the ground with people. And I think sometimes we crisscross at the right spots, but I think a lot of times we miss. Hmm. So this idea with people, hey, just get a new support system, Lee, shake it off and uh, live a wonderful life of sobriety. What's your uh, hmm. reaction to that statement? Um, well, it wasn't, it wasn't a wonderful life of sobriety at the time. And um, I, I know that this, you know, I, I have a terrible um, uh, habit of thinking that my worldview fits everybody's worldview. And, and, I, and, I, and I learned that there are a lot of people who quit drinking alcohol who, in that moment of quitting, find tremendous support within their sphere of influence. Their, their family and their friends, they, they love them for it. They embrace it. Uh, they, they make um, changes and adjustments you know, they, they make life easy for them. And, and I get a lot of people who say, yeah, I rock it. Like, I don't have a problem when I quit drinking because, and I love going out with my friends, right? Um, my friends, uh, they're just a bunch of dickheads when they've had a drink. You know, I, I tell them that and they look at me and say, yeah, you're right. You know, I couldn't go out with them. And and, and I think you're partly right in, in what you say in as much as a support system is very much needed because... I was very isolated. I was very alone. But I was very fortunate that as a half cash Chinese kid growing up in a very xenophobic um, a country like Wales, I, I was very used to being in the minority of one. <laughs> I was used to fighting my corner physically, uh, fist fighting. I, w- I was used to, I'm a little, I'm a little man, right? I, I, I was used to like, fighting like huge big guys like really fighting my con that came from my dad so so for me when it came to realizing that nobody wanted to be around me um it it, it came a little bit easier for me i was the people i i didn't get too many people taking a piss out of me because they knew i wouldn't tolerate it and even if they even if they did it, it was like jokey, but it was nothing that really caused me too much concern. I think the things that bothered me the most were the insidious, passive-aggressive comments and remarks in really close relationships. So, yes, a support system is really needed because I did it on my own. And as long as although I managed, it was really difficult. And a support system would have helped me. But before the support system, people need to be coached to find the skills to communicate within a support system to learn vulnerability to learn to share to learn to talk about their story to because if we cannot be our our authentic self if we're not willing to share the shit that's going on in our life it's really difficult for us to get the right empathy and support that we need and further more than that to get the help we need because people don't know who the real us are. So I would just kind of wrap that up by saying to you, yeah, support system is really important, but 
it's not for everybody. Like people need coaching and learning around how to talk to people. That is, I think that's actually something that we might have missed as counselors, to be honest with you. Um, you know, the thought of like slowing it down a little bit to a snail space and saying, wait a second, all right, we're teaching, you know, we're encouraging you to go out and, and seek a new support system or utilize the support system you have that's really behind you. But what if you lack some of those, you just haven't been taught those kind of communication skills about how to be vulnerable and you have lots of practice of how to like use booze to cover it over mm. or drugs to cover it over then all right we take that away from you all right yeah now go communicate and build a new support system you might have like you might not have those basic building blocks well that's 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 why uh in, in my experience talking to people uh the two reasons why people don't jive with aa are one i don't dig this religious shit two are you fucking kidding me i gotta sit there in front of people and talk it's because they're not they're not they're not designed to be like that. They haven't been raised like that. They haven't uh, found that confidence, which is exactly why they drink alcohol in the first place. So um, yeah, spot on. There, there needs to be a uh, slowing down of the pace. I really do like the way you said that. Like every every person I work with, I'm like, okay, let's just slow down. This is going to take some time, and we need to be um, happy with that, you know. And 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 I think definitely. Here you are, here you are, Ted. This is the power of communication, right? I just told you that my wife divorced me after I quit drinking alcohol, and for many years I blamed alcohol for the demise of my relationship. But really, when I look back on it in hindsight and a sober mind and a fresh view, it was a lack of communication skills that destroyed my first marriage. And it and it will be a lack so of, it will be a lack of communication skills that destroys my second marriage if I don't continue working on those skills. Man, you should be. You, you should probably go back to school and and become a therapist, Lee. <laughs> you got some good game. I was not. I was, you, I was never very good in school. Oh, hey, you got the you got the people part down though. So does alcoholism reach across the Atlantic Ocean? According to Alcohol Research UK, seven percent of adults in England regularly drink over the chief medical officer's low risk guidelines. In the UK, there were over 8,758 alcohol-related deaths, and the mortality rates are highest among people ages 55 to 64. In England, there are an estimated 595,000 dependent drinkers. While the price of alcohol has increased by 36% since 2005, it remains 60% more affordable than it was in 1980. Alcohol in the UK is a causal factor in more than 60 medical conditions, including mouth, throat, stomach, liver, and breast cancers, high blood pressure, cirrhosis of the liver, and depression. And so what do all these depressing statistics actually mean for the UK, or the United States for that matter? Hope. The fact of the matter is that people are getting clean in conventional and let's say unconventional ways. Did you know that simply reading a book versus going to alcohol rehab could actually change the course of your life? I quit drinking alcohol. Um, I guess the number one question is how did I do that, right? So t 10 years prior to quitting alcohol, I was a smoker, cigarettes, one of the uh, world's most addictive substances right up there with alcohol. Top five, uh, nicotine and, and alcohol are in there. 
And um, I tried everything to quit smoking and I couldn't. And then one day I was in work, worked in the railway industry for the first 20 years of my life. And this guy who smoked more than me, one day he just had quit smoking. And I said to him, how did you give up smoking? And he said, I read a book. Can you imagine that, Ted? You've like, you've, you've tried everything in your power to give up smoking. You, you, you feel like such a worthless piece of shit because you cannot stop killing yourself. And this guy says, yeah, I read a book. It was so easy. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm like, you're, you're just full of shit, right? But I had to like read the book just to figure out, you know, just to prove to this guy that he was full of shit. So I read this book, Alan Carr's Easy Way to uh, Stop Smoking Permanently. And I remember finishing a book on the Friday. And that night I was going to the pub with my mates and it was the first time I was going to like test this non-smoking thing. And, and I was like, this is never going to work. Like as soon as I have a beer, I'm going to want to, I'm going to want to, we call it a fag, right? As soon as I have a beer, I want, I'm going to want a fag. And I, and I go into the pub and um, everybody's offering me cigarettes and I don't want, I don't want them. And uh, from, what am I now? I'm uh, 42, my son's 16. I quit smoking for my son. So 16 years, I haven't even craved a cigarette. So 10 years later... All from I, reading this book. All from reading a book, right. So 10 years later, <laughs> when I decide I'm going to quit alcohol, I, I thought to myself, how are we going to do this? And of course, by this time, I realized that the belief, the worldview that nicotine is one of the most addictive substances in the world is a lie. It has to be a lie because I was addicted to it I read a book and then I'm not addicted to it. How is that possible? And I came to the conclusion that it, it was psychological, that I was programmed to believe that this substance was one of the most difficult to quit. Ergo, I couldn't quit. So using that same philosophy, when I decided to quit alcohol, I read Alan Carr's Easy Way to Control Alcohol. But even before I'd turned a page, I understood his methodology, so I uh, I knew I was going to quit, um, and I quit straight away. And then, what happened? Well, before I go on, any questions on that? Because I I'm going to go on to a different tangent. No, keep keep going, keep going. Okay, so I quit drinking alcohol. Uh, my wife, I quit drinking alcohol, and I, and I start to believe this power in, in literature, this power in books. And there was a book, it's actually my microphone is on this book right now. The only book I had in my house at the time was Jack Canfield's Success Principles. It was underneath my bed. I remember someone had bought it me several years earlier and I'd opened it and thought, what a pile of shit. And um, it was the only book there and I read it and Jack Canfield says, you can be whoever you want to be and you can do whatever you want to do. The only thing stopping you is yourself. Now, if you think about it, I've just quit alcohol. So now I'm like, oh, right, this guy says I can do what I want. Well, why have I been working on the railway for 20 years? Why am I friends with these people I've got nothing in common with? Why am I arguing with my wife every day? Why am I doing these things? And to cut a very long story short, I told my wife at the time that I was going to quit my job. On the railway, which you'll have to imagine was an absolutely monumentous decision. I've been working there ever since I was 16. This is 20 years later. I'd risen to two wow. two positions of managing director. I was responsible for 
millions in operating expenditure and revenue. I run the entire railway in the Western Wales territory of, of um, the UK. And I quit with the plan that I get one year's worth of salary and I'm going to give myself one year, get this, Ted, to become a professional poker player because I loved playing poker and Jack Canfield said you should do something you love. I love playing poker. And I thought if I can become a professional poker player, I can use the money and the time freedom that playing poker gives you to build the needy helper. And then I can help people quit alcohol the same as me. Uh, so I did it. I had a backup plan though. I'm not like super stupid. I went to a really big company who I knew admired me. And I said, I'm going to be a professional poker player. If it goes tits up, uh, will you give me a job? They said, yes. Um, so I had that backup plan. And um, I decided, I started trying to be a professional poker player. I, I wrote to a couple of magazines and said to them, hey, I'm, I'm going to leave the railway and become a professional poker player so I can help people quit drinking alcohol. That's a wonderful story. You, would you pay me if I write about it? And one magazine wrote back and said, yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, fuck. I, I don't even know how to write. So, <laughs> so I write this article. I cut a very long story short, Ted. I ended up in the next three to four years traveling all over the world to every conceivable place you can imagine writing and interviewing the top poker players in the world. And, and I started to earn money that way. And I stopped trying to become a professional poker player, but my dream worked out because it gave me the time freedom to create the needy helper, the alcohol addiction podcast. So even today, once I'm done talking to you, I'm going to write poker articles and I spent all this morning working on an online training course to help people quit alcohol. I have uh, coaching clients who I help quit through one-to-one coaching. I have a forum where I'm interacting every day, helping people quit. I create training videos, all kinds of stuff. So um, I'm living the dream that I set out to um, and it's all going really, really well. And that, that, that change of job was unbelievable. My, um, my wife divorced me at that time. She put all my belongings in a room and said, you have 24 hours to, to clear it out, otherwise it's going on the tip. And I, I remember going there and looking at it all. And, and I, of course, I had nowhere to live. I was living in my mother's box room at the age of 35. And uh, I remember ringing my friend saying, hey, do you, want, do you want everything I own? And he said, yeah. So he came down with a truck and took everything. And I left with um, a telly a PlayStation for my son when he visited me, my MacBook, my Kindle, bag full of clothes, um, and a dictaphone. And, and, and I just went and, and, and it was the most, not having to wake up for railway work and just have that yeah. sense of freedom was just like, wow. You, you don't realize how much you're chained to the autopilot mode until you switch it off. And um, yeah, since then, Ted, I've quit sugar. I quit a severe gambling addiction. Uh, I fell in love again and then realized that I had a real sexual problem, pornography problem, and I quit that. Uh, I quit, um, I went vegetarian and then became vegan. Um, quit sugar, processed food, 
Um, pretty much, yeah. So, I, so, pretty much everything. Yeah, you were. So you were really a, able able to kind of put things together. This my uh, actually my headset's on delay. I can <laughs> so hear. So I'm like hearing myself like. <laughs> so much for perfection. Yeah. Uh-huh. A lot of people say that addiction is a cover for some deeper issue that the person has not dealt with. It is only the tip of the iceberg when somebody gets sober from alcohol. They'll have these issues emerge which will need to be dealt with. Anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, unmedicated, run rampant among people struggling with alcoholism. According to the National Institute of Health, anxiety and mood disorders are among the most common. So even if I have depression and feel isolated, can't I still beat my alcoholism? Or does the connection of seeing people at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings provide me with, let's say, not just support, but the template and practice of opening up to others and being vulnerable? Vulnerability? Is it really that simple? It's interesting that you were able to make such a big jump saying, wait a second, I've been working at this job for many, many, many years, all right, I had this addiction, or these two addictions, cigarettes and alcohol, or I'm going to give those up, I'm going to actually pursue a a dream, the best dream I have at the time, It was um, and really go for it. It it was... And so what I kind of wonder about is, I... Like I've worked with a lot with people, and they have that same vision. They have that same dream. They sort of have it going on in the back of their heads. Like I'm probably not really meant to do this for the rest of my life. They're maybe hooked into alcohol, but they also have this other like life sort of flow going where they're headed, and they kind of know. Like you kind of knew. Like, hey, I'm probably not destined to work in the rail system for the rest of my life. And I've talked to people, they have that initial thought, they want to get clean, they get clean, and they have these big dreams, and then somehow somebody just kind of like, or things happen that just kind of push them back down again. And they sort of give up and go back to the bottle. I love the fact that you were able to read some stuff that really spoke to you. You were ready to hear it, and you really moved on it. But I'm just wondering, because you've talked to so many people you know, through the needy helper, um, what you've been learning in terms of those people that have those thoughts, but they just can't quite take that next step. I think what I see a lot of the times is people are constrained a lot by their circumstances, particularly around family environment. So at the time when I had quit drinking alcohol, I had been in a relationship, married uh, for, I've been married for close to 15 years. I've been in a relationship for like 20. Uh, I had a son, I had mortgage. I had 30,000 pounds of gambling debt at that time. Uh, I was in a mess. Um, And the first thing that you think about when you start to want to go and fulfill your dreams and never drink again and do all these wonderful things is money. Like, how am I going to pay the bills? How, how am I going to actually achieve my dreams and, and still keep this shit together? So I think in my experience, when I'm, when I'm dealing with people who are single, I see a much more rapid change than people 
who don't have who have more responsibility. It's almost like the responsibility acts as an anchor preventing them from change because it's not only themselves who are afraid of not being able to support, it is their family not wanting them to change because they're afraid. That's and I'm talking about like a male standpoint here because it very often it with the people that I've been dealing with it, the the male very often seems to be the breadwinner or have the biggest say. What I find with the women is uh, who I've been working with is they they lose their power in a relationship, and when it comes to change, they just have not got the the power. They don't they can't. They can't remember expression. They can't remember how to do things anymore because they're so used to somebody else doing it for them. Because at some point along the way, their job became relegated to you look after the kids while I go and work. Which which happened in my first relationship um, and is currently happening at the moment. I'm making money and working and my wife is looking after our daughter. And I'm fortunate that I stay at home so I can get involved in that. But we can't both look after our daughter and we can't both work unless we ditch our kid with, uh, you know, a child mind and we don't want to do that, right? So that's one of the things I find. The other things I find is let's not underestimate what I did because I was writing the other day on my forum that the biggest, scariest moment in my life, the biggest challenge I've ever faced was that quitting that job. And then when I wrote out like my top 20 biggest challenges in my life, quitting alcohol, quitting uh, anything was not even in my top 20. It was nowhere near that, Ted. Mm. It, was, it was all these things that were bigger than alcohol was moving home, leaving um, communities and cultures and having to assimilate into new ones, right? Um, and I think... Sometimes you just have to just pull the trigger, right? And and I remember in my life, you, you know, you said there was a time when I must have thought, oh, I'm not going to be in the railway forever. That time came when I got offered an absolutely monumental opportunity to earn a shitload of money with a very senior position um, creating a, a, a resource center from scratch for the for this railway company. But I had to move home. And I didn't do it, Ted. Mm. I was so afraid of failing that I actually blamed my wife for not wanting to move in a very passive-aggressive, cowardly way and didn't even realize I did it at a subconscious level until many years later. And I think when I gave up drinking, I remembered that moment and said, you cannot do this again. So I think it's just life. It's just like you you take some beats, you get some regrets. And at some point, an insight happens. A good way of, 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 of I teach people here, and I see this happening with people I work with and my podcast guests, is stay in the conversation. What do I mean by that? Continue listening to these podcasts. Read the right books, um, join the right groups, mix with the right people, do the right things, healthy choices, etc., etc. That is sticking with the right conversation. And if you stick with the right conversation and you do the work, then you will develop an insight, you will get the confidence, you'll get the courage.
Because if you start hanging around with people who have quit their job and who have like felt that pain and have and have created a wonderful life and they're they're now your community and they're they they're showing you and, and helping you and, and saying, look, this is it is painful, but look at what happens at the end of it, and this is how I can support you, is a completely different proposition to living in a valley of three thousand people, telling those people that you're gonna quit probably one of the best jobs that is in that valley. And everyone looking at you going, you're a complete and utter fucking dickhead, right? How can you quit in that, in the face of that? That is really difficult. And I think that happens to so many people because people are really trying to look out for you. And, 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 and people believe moving away from the rat race is detrimental. Quitting your job is detrimental. Leaving your... Um, your wife is detrimental. Stop quitting drinking is detrimental. So they scare you into remaining doing what you're doing. So you have kind of this this fear and this fear within yourself and, and people kind of like coming in on the outside, adding even more fear or scare to it. And it probably, I, I mean... I'm not sure, but it just seems like people really get stuck there then. And what do I do? Um, maybe I don't even want to deal with it. Maybe I'll just go back to booze or drug and whatever it is. Um, and maybe this dream maybe is too big or this move is too big for me. And so I really like what you're saying. And a lot of people say this, but I like your real life kind of like on the ground, bare to the bones, like, pedal to the metal like you got to do some work to change your life like it's not going to happen instantaneous i can pound down 10 shots and i know i'm going to feel <laughs> could smoke a joint i know i'm going to feel in like you know 10 seconds um but to change your life you got to be a little bit more patient in the process so can people have transformational moments when dealing with an addiction can they actually completely revamp their entire life in a year or two? Many people with an addiction recall that awful rock bottom moment that sometimes propels them into a new life. In an eight-year study by the National Institute of Health following nearly 1,200 addicts, they were able to follow up on over 94% of the study participants, and they found that extended abstinence really does predict long-term recovery. Only about a third of the people who are absent less than a year will remain abstinent. So it's that magic one year. For those who achieve a year of sobriety, less than half will relapse. If you make it to five years of sobriety, your chance of relapse, according to the study, is less than 15%. So what if a man in the UK faced the end of his marriage due to alcoholism? Would he just jump back into the bottle? Or might he even become a poker player? Would he actually quit his job on a dramatic moment or just think it and then fall back in line like so many of us do? How much courage do you have? I woke up and went to work every day and I was like a zombie. I was no good to anybody. I, 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 my heart was gone. But I couldn't leave because I had my wife and my family to support. It wasn't until I went to a meeting in Trostra Steelworks I pulled into the steelworks. I'm not kidding. It was raining outside. The droplets coming down the screen of my um, windscreen reminded me of the Matrix. And I started to think that 
I wasn't in the, the real world. Like th- this world wasn't real. And I, and I looked and there was a huge gray machine spitting out gray metal filings, right? The, the, there was gray shit all over my car from the steelworks. There was a huge gray um, chimney puffing out gray smoke. And in and around my actual van was just, I had gray silt all over my suit, my briefcase, my shoes, and I just fucking broke down crying. I was like, what am I doing? And I picked my phone up. I rung my ex-wife and I'm crying. Like, not just like cry, cry, but I just watched like Bambi on repeat cry. Like I was blubbering, right? She says, what's the matter with you? And I said, I got to leave my job. And she said, what do you want me to do about it? And I said, I need your permission. I need to know that you'll be with me no matter what happens from this point on. And she said, I got your back. And fucking two seconds later, I quit. I just needed to know that if I fucked up, my wife wasn't going to leave me. I, I, had, I needed that support, right? That's important. The other thing that's important is I'm not advocating here that someone quits drinking and then flies into the next change. Because what happens in my experience and talking to other people is I want to talk about a concept called white space, right? You quit drinking alcohol and all of a sudden white space appears. What do I mean by that? In your physical environment, because you're no longer thinking about like going for a drink, who's going to drive, where you're going to puke up the next morning, who's going to look after the kids, what you're going to wear, all this thinking goes away. You have physical time. But more than that, this brain fog lifts because you're no longer like your brain's not fucking diluted with this poison, right? So you start thinking, you have space in your mind and thoughts start flooding in. You start philosophizing and all this kind of stuff, right? At that point, if you were using willpower to quit drinking alcohol, which 99.9% of the people I meet are, you're in a really precarious situation. You're going to, you're, you're white knuckling it. And if you then start saying to yourself, fuck, you know why? I just quit drinking and I just developed a sugar addiction. I listen to Lee Davy on the Needy Helper and he doesn't, he quit sugar. So I'm going to quit sugar because I can't put that poison in my body if, I, if, I've, if I've decided not to put this poison in my body. And, and I fucking hate my job. And Lee said he's going to quit. You collapse under the pressure, right? Collapse. Yeah. And you'll just go straight back drinking. I want to make this really clear. When I decided I was going to quit my job, let me make this really clear, right? I wasn't white knuckling it. I had had an insight and realized, and this is very powerful, folks, that alcohol offered zero value, zero value. And when you realize that alcohol offers zero value, there is no desire to drink. With no desire to drink, I can now walk into a pub with my friends. My mother can die. I can go through divorce, no matter whatever hits me, I'm not going to drink because I no longer, it's not a, I don't even think about it because I realize that there's no value in it. It was a complete shift of worldview. Now, armed with the power that the new worldview gives me, I'm freed now to quit my job because I don't have to worry that I'm going to relapse. Does that make sense? It does. It, it totally does. And I think that other people out there will relate to what you just said. I think it's a very, you put it in a very eloquent way. Um, the thing I'm really kind of bouncing off on what you're saying is it's really about like, I, I call it, 
on some level, the sober body. Like you sort of get back in touch with your body on a physical way, in a physical sense, on an emotional sense, and in a spiritual sense. That sort of like not being anesthetized all the time, that there's a little buffer period, but you're able to kind of get back into being who you are and being in your body and embracing or beginning to kind of even face sometimes for the first time. And what we know to be true is like some people have like unbelievable anxiety and worry. Yeah. I mean, 70% of the U.S. population suffers from some sort of anxiety disorder. So I know one of the things that we always had problems with in treatment was, and I heard from a lot of people, is like, hey, man, I just got sober, Ted. Um, I don't know if I'm really all that comfortable being in my body. And let me tell you, my anxiety is going through the rough or I'm, in, or I'm in depressed as hell about the state of my life. So what I like about what you said in a, not in a, not in a total direct way, but how I relate to it is like, like you became more and more comfortable, I guess, in the A where it would be in your skin, but being who you are and realizing that, wow, I can actually have almost like total freedom by being more in this sober body and the sober life than I ever could in my drinking life. Almost as if the drinking life offered like more change to hold you down or the sober life, even though it's frightening as hell and scary as hell, um, at the end of the tunnel or through the tunnel, there's more freedom. The yeah, the only so that was thing, my ramble. The the only thing <laughs> you're speechless. Yeah, I I, it, I think the key thing that come out of that was what I see is people people want to be fixed. So people come to people like you and me and, and say they want to be fixed, right? They they've quit drinking alcohol and now. You know, they're feeling pain and suffering and um, they can't cope with life and all these kind of things and they want they want to be fixed. And that's why the pharmaceutical industry in America in particular is just fucking rife because it's just plowing out these, you know, drugs for people to kind of deal with their issues, right? And what I try to tell people who work with me is, well, this is reality. Like the, the, the only time you're suffering is when you think you're elsewhere than where you should be. Like you're thinking to yourself, I need to I need to stop having these thoughts. I need to stop having these feelings. I can't deal with this pressure. I need to be somewhere else. Well, that thinking is what's causing you to drink. If you can just say to yourself, whoa, this is tough. This is fucking tough. And then just close your eyes and then just like feel like how tough it is. Where is tough? How are you feeling? Why is it so anxious? And just realize that at some point, and it ain't that, it ain't, <laughs> we're not talking days, hours. We're not even talking 30 minutes. That's going to go. You don't, there's no need yeah, to run away. There's no need to run away from it. Now, that's a very simple way of saying it. You need the support structure around you where you feel safe to allow that information and that knowledge and that understanding to assimilate in your mind, in your neural pathways, and to become a new part of your operating system. So do we have a predisposition for alcoholism genetically? 
The National Institute of Health definitely thinks so, but we are also influenced by our environment. So if we have parents that drink and partake and have a history of alcoholism, it makes us more likely that we too might fall in their footsteps. But can we turn it all around? Can we rewrite our life story? Well, with courage, trust, and connection, I guess anything's possible. So I'm a great believer that we're all born pretty much the same Ted, right? Like, when my six-month-old daughter was just born, we went and had scans. Why did we have scans? The check-in, yeah, that all her parts are in the right place. And when she came out, what did they do? They checked her fingers, they checked her toes, they dropped her to check her reflexes. They want to know that her physical parts are all in order. But when I look at her, right, as an addict, um, my wife is an addict, when I look at her, I don't see an addict. I don't see someone who's going to turn into a fucking raving lunatic like her parents were. I look at someone who is going to be brought up in a completely different environment with two completely different parents. And I look at her and think, girl, you got, you won the fucking lottery. There's no way you're yeah, going to, yeah. you, you might turn into a fuck up, but it ain't going to be anything to do with genetics. Right. And, and I look at her yes. and she looks at me and she smiles. Where does that smile come from? Where does that happiness come from? Right. So I believe other than the way out there, genetic disorders that we are born with, mental illness or whatever, right? Other than that, we're pretty much all the same. What makes us different, Ted, is how we're raised, what environment we're in. That curates our worldview, what culture we grew up in. Now, what I believe quite strongly is alcohol, alcoholism is not a word that you use to describe someone who's lost control of alcohol. You know, alcoholism is not a word used for people who go to AA or end up underneath, you know, the railway bridges drinking vodka out of brown bag. Alcoholism is an ideology. Alcoholism is a culture. It's a belief system. And alcoholism affects every single human being that is born into that ideology. What do I mean by that? As a child, I am told that Santa fucking Claus drinks alcohol in my house when he goes around the world. Now, as a child, I think Santa Claus is seeing 7 billion people tonight. So he's drinking 7 billion drinks. And I, I actually wake up in the morning and I see the can of lager and we shake it. He, he's been. We take red wine to our school teachers at Easter and at Christmas to thank them for looking after us. We see our uncles, our parents, our aunties, our grandparents getting fucking sloshed and getting really happy and giving us money. We don't see them when they're smashing their wives over their head or falling on the floor or puking into a bucket because we're in bed. We don't we don't see we don't see our parents smashing each other to fucking bits, shouting and screaming at each other, because we're too young to understand what's going on. But it, we we are getting it subconsciously because we're born into that ideology. Now, when you're come to 35 years of age like I did, that's a that's a lot of hard wiring. Like that's a that's a I look at it as an operating system. We've got hardwire, my physical my physical capabilities. Am I going to do exercise? What am I going to eat to power this Ferrari that I'm born in? That's my hardware. But I've also got my software, how I think, my culture, my beliefs, my values, right? I'd be a fool to think that I created those, Ted. They came from my parents. 
And what are my parents? My parents are a bunch of pissheads. Was it genetic? No, my dad's not even blood related to me. But he is a drinker. He is at the high end of the alcoholism spectrum. So do you know what my dad wanted from me as a son? His only one thing he wanted was he wanted me to sit in the pub next to him on a Sunday morning, drink with him and gamble on the horses. It was his pride. It was the only one thing. Why? That was how he would connect with me. Why? Because it was the only way his father connected with him. It's an ideology sprung into another ideology, which is then passed on to me. Now, do I pass that ideology onto my kids? I got a 16-year-old and I've got a six-month-old. My 16-year-old was 10 years of age when I changed my ideology. Right now, he drinks. He drinks. He's, he's now got 14 stitches in his hand. His right hand, which he punches with, which he tells me accidentally went through a plate glass window at a party that he was at, that he wasn't drinking. I swear that I wasn't, you know. Now, kids have yeah. to go, kids go through that, Ted. I've had that conversation with him. He's lucky he's got, a, he's got a mom who drinks, he's got a dad who doesn't. I think that will affect him greatly. I really do. I don't think he will be like I was. Yeah. But I, I really do believe this. And that, to me, is the key here. If you can understand that you were given these rules, this rule book, and that you can re rewrite it when you're older and you're wiser and you're smarter. Yeah. Because we learned this when we was a kid and we knew fuck all. Now we know life, right? Yeah, I, I think that's so, so spot on. This idea of, and I love that analogy of kind of hardwire and softwire, that, that we are sort of wired from an early age on and we sort of adopt that, that's our wiring, so we adopt a template around that. And that I think you're inspiring. I mean, you're really inspiring to me, Lee, this idea that, we can actually begin to play around with the wiring even if we're older. Yeah. We can always, even though it's hardwired, like I talk to a lot of people that say, Ted, I'm always going to be this way. I was an alcoholic. I will always be an alcoholic. I've tried sobriety. I've tried it several times. I failed. This is my destiny. It's sort of like almost saying like the translation being this is my wiring. Mm. And I love your story. And I've experienced on a personal and professional level this idea that we can begin to rewire ourselves really at any moment in time. And maybe we don't want to rewire, like go for like a complete engine overhaul, but maybe by tweaking a couple wires at a time, we can begin to, you know, sort of like rewire ourselves in a positive way. Yeah, the only the only thing that stops you doing a complete overhaul is fear. It, 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 it's yes, all, it, it's yes. all, it's always fear. And how do you get over fear? It's going. It just goes back to what I said before. You you just have to experiment in life. You have to be in the right conversation. You need to try things. You need to realize that. Look, you know, if I don't get everything done today, like, and I'm stressing and worried about that, I can't fit everything in. If I don't get everything done, what's going to happen the next day? Nothing. Nothing ever happens. It's just the same. Like, think about all the absolute traumatic experiences you have been through in your life, listeners, right? Every single one of you on here now would have gone through some trauma at some point in your life. Even having a child is trauma. Like, I, I, I was at a home birth when my daughter was born. 
With my wife, she was there for two days. She did not stop having contractions. I know people think that's a wonderful thing, but it's also very, very traumatic, right? So we've gone yes. through all this. We've gone through all this trauma in our lives, and look where we are today. We're still here. We're still in the ring. We still got boxing gloves on. We're still fighting, right? And the reason is because we're fucking wired to win. We are more capable than we think we are, right? But we need inspiration. Yep. Inspiration provides courage. We need to have an open mind. We need to have trust in people. And I'm not expecting you to just listen to a podcast like this and go, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust Lee. I'm going to trust Ted. No, you need to listen to more podcasts. You need to learn more about them. You need to join forums that they're in and around, kind of get to know them more, build up trust. Once you get trust, Ted, you can then get connection. Once you've got connection, boom, that is when the greatest work happens. When so, is so man, that is so profound what you just said. And I want Recovery Nation to take that in. I mean, I've never heard it said this way, but it really like just floored me right now. You have to have trust before you can have connection. There's a lot of people that say, I don't have enough connection in my life. And is really the translation is I have difficulty trusting people or finding people I can really open up to mm-hmm. and feel safe around. Mm-hmm. Because if you can do that part, then the connection will really flow. And I'm not saying it's an easy road. I struggle with it. Everybody really struggles with it. But it's like st- attempting sort of like everybody out there is wired for success. I totally agree, Lee. And I think everybody is has dreams. And if you can develop connection in a dream and have some spirit and motivation to get there, um, why can't it happen? See, a lot of people give us a lot of reasons of, of why things can't happen. And I always like to reverse it and say, well, why, you know, why can't it can happen? Yeah, right? I, I, I would say to um, you're living proof, man, you're living proof. Well, and anybody who says that I can't do this or it's too difficult or I'm an alcoholic for life. That's the resistance talking. You know, the resistance takes many forms. Read Stephen Pressfield's book, The War of Art. The resistance is addiction. The resistance is procrastination. The resistance is fear. It's always there in your mind, never goes anywhere. But this this conversation of connection, think about two people in a relationship who've both been drinking for the past 30 years, okay? One of them decides they're going to quit drinking. Let's say that the woman decides to quit drinking. The guy doesn't. Now, all of a sudden, the woman is going to get real pissed off every time the guy comes home and has a drink. How does she react to that? Well, she fucking tells him that she's pissed off. She acts all pissy. Uh, They stop having sex. She doesn't want to be around him. She doesn't want him touching her. She doesn't even want to talk to him anymore. He don't know what the hell is going on. So he just defends himself, gets really angry, starts shouting at her, says, when are you going to like get back to the way you were? You're really boring now. You're a non-drinker. Everyone thinks you're boring, all this kind of stuff, right? Conflict, probably end of relationship. Now, if the woman who has just quit drinking can just chill out for a minute, take responsibility, even though she's getting all these daggers thrown at her, just take responsibility for a minute. Try to put ourselves in her husband's shoes and realize that after three or four decades together, she has just taken away his drinking partner, that he is terrified that the woman he loves 
is going to improve, get better, look more beautiful like we all do when we stop drinking alcohol, um, get into better circles with more beautiful, more amazing people, and all of a sudden look back and think, do you know what? I can do better than him. So he is scared and he is shitting himself. Now, if you can put yourself in his shoes and you can communicate to him from his point of view and listen and hold space for him and let him know that you see him and you hear him rather than defending, now you have connection. Now you have connection, now you can figure your shit out because you cannot figure your shit out unless you get that connection. And it's all about figuring out how to get that connection. How do you get connection? It's exactly the same as what we said right at the beginning of the podcast when you asked me, what do we do about support systems? And I said, people don't know how to mix in them because they don't know how to communicate. This is the same thing. Buy books, go on training courses, learn how to improve your communication skills. Yeah, don't drink alcohol. Yes. Don't drink alcohol and think to yourself, oh, do you know what? When I drink alcohol, I lose my inhibitions. Therefore, I'm a better communicator. Like, fuck you. You can't even remember the next day what you've said. Let's be in control. Yeah. Let's be in control of our conversations. You know, don't focus on the alcohol. Focus on improving your communication skills. Then you won't need the alcohol. Then you can talk and you can connect. I love it. So take a listen, Recovering Nation. These are just like total value bombs and just like words of wisdom here. This idea of cultivating connection, having dreams, moving forward, um, getting into those conversations and continuing to get into those conversations. And they're not all going to go great all the time, but you're going to commit to it. So what about other resources? Are there ways to get sober if I really wanted to? Or maybe I just want to try out the sobriety hat for a bit and see how it goes. Definitely. Conventional or unconventional. So, Lee, I know we've been talking for a while now here, but do you have any words of wisdom for, let's say, somebody's out there listening? They're like, hey, I stumbled on this podcast. I'm thinking about giving up my drinking or giving up my drugging um and they happen to turn it on and they're like hey this guy seems to have it together he was in in the pit he pulled himself out he's a success story um but i'm not him man i've struggled with this a long time what would be your words of wisdom to that listener out there first of all i would say have patience like it may seem to you that I said I read a book and then I just quit drinking but I was 35 years of age so I've gone through and I was drinking for 20 years so I've gone through 20 years of drinking thinking about quitting trying to get my head around it to have patience it takes time have acceptance with who you are like if you're drinking in the moment and you think you're a complete fuck up, then accept that's where you are in that moment, you know, and, and, and start to learn to see where you're doing some really good stuff in life. Try and find the gems within yourself. Try, try and like find some self-love, like, you know, a bit of hippiness there, but try and find some self-love, right? Don't do this by willpower alone. Don't white knuckle it. Because to me, it's all about happiness. And if you're going to go through the rest of your life 
thinking that you really want to drink and kicking yourself in the balls each day because you're not allowed? Fucking drink. This is about happiness. It's not about drinking or not. It's about happiness. And if you're happier drinking, drink. Right? But do not live an entire life of lack, of white-knuckling it, hoping that life is not going to throw you a flamethrower and you're going to drink. How do you do that? You have to change your worldview. You have to start some self-observation. You need to start creating a little diary, a little log. And when you drink, you've got to drink in a focused state. And you've, if you think, for example, let me give you an example. Here's a good piece of advice. If you think that you cannot experience a social occasion without drinking alcohol, then the next time you go to a social occasion, really focus on what's going on. Focus on what's creating the laughter and the fun, okay? Because you'll find that it's not beer. It's the people you mix with. It's the conversations you have. It's the stories and jokes they tell. Now, if you're sober on that night, watch when that changes. It changes when people get drunk. They, they, the jokes have gone. They're no longer funny. They start to slur shit. People start to get aggressive. People start to come on to you that you don't want them to. They smell. They physically change, right? Once you start really getting in the moment of your drinking, then you can look back and then you can ask whether or not your statement was true. And your statement is, that alcohol is enhancing my social experience. Really? Is it really enhancing your social experience? I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. Right? Because if you go to watch a rock concert sober and you go to watch a rock concert drunk, I am telling you that you are not going to experience that concert better when you are intoxicated. You won't because it rubs you of your senses. So what is happening there? It's a lie. It's an illusion. It's an ideology. And you are programmed to believe that it is true. And don't be worried about that. Don't feel ashamed about that. There are so many ideologies that we believe in that we don't even know why we believe in. Some people on this call probably believe in God. And they have no idea why they believe in God other than the fact that when they were a kid, they went to church with their parents. They were told to read the Bible. They listened to priests. And now they believe in God, right? This is about questioning everything in our life. And once you start questioning it, poking it and prodding it, see if it serves you or not, okay? Then you can manage, especially if you work with the right people, to change your worldview, realize there's no value, therefore there's no desire, therefore you're free to just interact with all your friends when they go out for social occasions because you won't want to drink. The other thing is, get yourself a like-minded community right? If you get in the right community, and we've got one over at Needy Helper, the Needy Helper Forum, and uh, Ted will put links below. P you will see other people who were really scared coming out of their shell and sharing the most unbelievable shit. And that allows you to feel the confidence to do the same. It takes time, but it does. When you hear me talking about some of the most insane thoughts that go through my head, breaking all the taboos you can imagine, it will give you a little bit of confidence that you'll do the same. Get a like-minded group of people. Do not do this on your own. And do the work. Stay in the conversation. Listen to the podcasts, right? Um, read the books. Read Alan Carr's Easy Way to Control Alcohol. Do the work. What do I mean by do the work? Last thing I'll say. 
triggers. Every time you feel like you want to drink, there's a reason why you feel like you want to drink. And you need to get to the bottom of that reason and you need to find the cognitive bias that is there inherent in that thought and you need to work on it and change it. But you can't do that unless you are keeping a log. If they need help at the forum, we have a little trigger section. I encourage people every day that you feel like you need a drink, that you go on there straight away and you start typing in there what's going on for you so people can help you uncover the, the lies that you tell yourself, that the resistance tells you, that the addiction tells you that keeps you hooked. And that's some piece of advice I give people. I love it. It's really... Um... You know, the, the, this is like great down-to-earth direction somebody could take. That's what I really appreciate about it. It's like insight, awareness. Like, all right, a lot of people say just stop drinking. You're saying on some level, if you're not ready to go there, at least become an observer of yourself. Become an observer of the experience and not have the same experience, but have maybe one different experience where you experience it sober to see what it's all about. And I think, like, I found the same thing that really what – those experiences are about is connection yeah deep connection yeah and they sort of fade with the more you drink or drug really yeah, yeah. um so i guess we're going to begin to wrap up here but I w i'm really curious about how the forum's going lee and if you would have any other books you'd recommend to our listeners the forum's going really well at the moment you know i'm like i'm so proud of the the people who are on there at the moment and the work that they're doing um it's just like a dream come true for me like i i get up every morning now what is it say seven eight years since i left the railway um and i know i now i get to get up have conversations with wonderful people like you inspire people hopefully although some people will be listening thinking i'm a bit of a dickhead and then i get to go on my forum and then I get to listen to people. I get to read people. We have a process on the forum called checking in, Ted, right? So what I encourage people to do on there every day is they come on, they check in. This is what I did today. This is how I felt today. This is how I felt from an emotional standpoint. This is what I had to deal with. This is how I over overcome it, right? And in that kind of like channel, when we're checking in, nobody's allowed to offer help and guidance. Nobody's allowed to judge. We're there to just support people, you know, and to give them empathy. Now, if they want to take that like day, let's say you had a shitty day and you had a trigger and you can't quite wrap your head around it, we have another channel called Help and Guidance. They get over to Help and Guidance. They say, can people help me with this trigger? And then we do the work. We get in there and do the work. And the beauty about the forum, Ted, is I'm listening. I'm watching. And I hear them. I hear people say, I'm really struggling with um, my, my eating issue right now. So I'll go out and get a guest and I'll interview him on the podcast and I'll write blog posts and, and I will talk about eating issues. I'll hear someone say, I'm having a real problem with my husband because he won't drink. I'll get a relationship coach on the podcast. I'll create a relationship training course, you know, we'll do one-on-one -on -one coaching. And I've always wanted to do that, Ted. I've always wanted to take a forum from, like I've been on forums where People will go on the forum and they'll say, well, I had a bad day today, um, thought I'd licked it, I was on day three, um, stubbed my toe, got really annoyed, uh, drunk fucking 10 pints of lager, and then went missing for a week. Um, and then everyone <laughs> says, everyone says, oh man, well, you know, we've all been there, relapse is part of the deal, really sorry that happened to you. Um, next week, uh, well, I made it to day four, uh, stubbed my finger, got drunk, 
And then everyone's like, oh, well, yeah, 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 unlucky. And I, and, I, and I go on these forums and I'm like, oh, um, well, this is what you could do to help. <laughs> Mate, I got banned from so many sobriety forums for helping people, right? <laughs> I am serious. The top. How dare you help people? The, How dare the, you help people? The top sobriety forums <laughs> banning me. So, yeah, I really wanted to create a difference where people are not on my forum to quit alcohol, Ted. They're there for life. Like, we're friends on there. Do you know what I mean? Like, I got people from Australia, Greece, Canada, the UK, Ireland. We're friends. We're all in this together, helping each other out. We know more about each other's lives on there than their own partners know because of what we've shared. And I guarantee you, everybody that came on the forum, they were all shy, sensitive people. They, they did, really didn't know how to do this. But within private emails, talking on the forum, bit of one-to-one coaching, videos, listening to podcasts, everybody started to build a little bit more confidence and trust. And now when someone new comes on there, like everybody's on there, welcome to the forum, blah, 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 you know? And it, so yeah. it's, it's going really well. In terms of books, Alan Carr, Easy Way to Control Alcohol, uh, great book. Um, if you want to change your worldview and your belief system around alcohol. Another book that I suggest people read, and this is way out there, is a book by Melanie Joy. And I'm probably going to butcher the title. And it's called something like um, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs and Wear Cows. And it's a book about um, carnism and veganism. And why would I want people to read that? It's because it's about ideologies. It's about understanding that we're programmed from birth to eat meat without even thinking about it. That we look at one species and think it's okay to eat it while we think the other one's a pet. And 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 how if we swap them over and actually <laughs> serve you dog burgers, you wouldn't even know. And, 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 and the reason that book is so powerful and I relate it back to alcohol is you start to think, oh yeah, like this is a conditioning, a human conditioning. What else are we conditioned to believe? Well, we're also conditioned to believe that alcohol is normal. People who smoke cigarettes are conditioned to believe that it reduces stress when really it creates stress. So, so that book in itself is really good when it comes to ideologies. Sapiens uh, by Noah Yuval Harari, another great book to really understand human evolution from the moment we emerged out of Africa as homo sapiens to where we are today. He goes through it, Ted, in such a great way where you can understand how we created culture, why we created it, how we managed to go from being little tribes of 150 people to be, you know, 378 million people underneath Donald Trump's leadership, right? I mean, it's a fascinating book. Yeah. Um, podcast wise because I believe podcasts are really great listen to Ted's podcast I'm going to plug my own podcast the Alcon Vision yes. podcast um, <laughs> yeah I think just listen to podcasts I've been listening more and more um, and I've talked to a lot of people that one gentleman in particular um, he has his headphones on at work 
he works more of a custodian job. He's, you know, buffing the hallways. He's taking care of business in the building. And uh, he has his headset on. Everybody thinks he's listening to music, but he's actually listening to just like tons yeah, yeah. of podcasts, some for fun, some addiction podcasts, some, you know, just to help him out. And he really says he does it just because it's kind of this ongoing dialogue in his ear about like support and connection. And that really draws him to that. Yeah. David Burns, so great strategy. David Burns podcast, Feeling Good, the, uh, the Feeling Good podcast. He um, is a cognitive behavioral therapist expert, and he's just done a five-part series where he, he's recorded him working with a um, a client who has a belief that he's got a defect in his brain because he um, he can't relate to his son. And, and, and we know that people think they have a defect in their brain, which makes them drink alcohol, right? So there's no real difference. Defect in your brain, defect in your brain, right? And you can see them, yeah. go, you can hear them going through the process and hear this guy recovering completely after suffering from 30 years, just over a couple of sessions, just fucking getting it that he's just completely been fucking himself over. And that, so that's. Oh, man, I have to totally check that out. Mate, I, oh, and David Burns has been a guest on my podcast as well. So let's check out that episode. But yes. yeah, de- definitely just, and, and, and needy helper at the moment, just a little plug. Um, we've got the forum, obviously, get over on the forum. We've got different membership options where you get different uh, value. And I'm just creating a, an online training course called Waking Up a Life After Alcohol which encompasses all my theories and, and uh, my thoughts on the ideology of alcoholism and how you can change your worldview to move forward in life, not wanting a drink, which I think is really, really super important. So um, check the uh, links out below um, this interview, I guess, and then find your way to Needy Helper and, and check it out, yeah. Sounds good. Well, Lee, we want to thank you for spending the time with us today. And and, uh, with that, we salute you. Rock on! Yeah! (laughs) Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. That wraps our episode with Lee Davey. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider reviewing us on iTunes or subscribing. It really helps. If you'd like to learn more about Lee, visit thetruthaboutalcohol.co.uk. And if you're looking to stop drinking, visit fullpotentialnow.org or check out the show notes where we've got an incredible discount on Lee's Truth About Alcohol course. This week's episode features music by Patrick Reinholtz, Lovely Socialite, and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.